Power is about who is in the room, who decides, who makes the trade-offs, and who ultimately benefits. Now, the reality is there's always an incumbent dominant situation, whether it's a dominant race, dominant culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. Some of my best coaches and mentors are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. So I have nothing against that. But there is a dominant culture which has the power. And I think the millennials in particular and the next generation, so to speak, has pointed out this fact, which is, listen, if we want to build a inclusive society, we need to have seats at the table. That doesn't mean just me because I'm a millennial. There could be a narrative, oh, that's entitlement. I think it's about just having a more holistic look at how things are done. It's a realistic sense of what is the source of power in this world. So I'm not picking any policy differences one way or the other. I just say it's about power. And I think we need to make room at the table for generations to come on topics of materiality. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast, Sid Finkelstein here, and this is episode 105. And my guest today is Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman of the Board of Directors at Kearney, one of the world's leading global consulting firms. And we got a lot of things we're going to be talking about today. Alex's personal story is fascinating, story about his family, immigrants from China. One of the brothers left, and that was his father. And everything changed after that. And to me, you know, and he'll share this with us. And it's another reminder of the power of immigrants to not only change their lives, but the lives of many, many people all around them in their new country. And it's certainly apropos because the idea of refugees and immigrants coming from different countries trying to have a better life, whether that better life is in America, in Canada, in Australia, in Europe is not going away. We've seen what's happened in Afghanistan, in the U.S., the southern border with Mexico and Latin America for sure, and it continues. It's just kind of amazing because the vast, vast, vast majority of people that come in as immigrants who have given up everything to try to create a better life, they add so much more value to the country and the community in which they end up settling, in which they end up living. And we keep having these debates, never mind looking at the birth rates and the trend line for birth rates and how we're on a path in the U.S., to have not enough working people to support retired people, which is what's already been happening in Japan. So the story that's pro-immigrant is kind of amazing. And today we talked to Alex Liu about his story and what that's like. I also wanted to have Alex on the show because he understands what Asian American discrimination looks like. And he's been very outspoken on the power of diversity, what we can do about this problem and what it feels like. And it's really kind of exploded in the last couple of years, and it's still going on. And I think having a leader like Alex, who has had such a, a huge impact in so many areas, is great to have. I mean, he has one example. He was named on the 2020 Global Diversity List, and uh, he's appeared at on the World Economic Forum and on television to discuss equity and inclusion, both for business and for society. The third reason why Alex is such a great guest is because his thing is joy at work. Now, let's do a little poll. Is anyone against joy at work? 
I didn't think so, right? I didn't think so. And he's written about this. He's tried to promote that. He's tried to create that at, at Kearney. And in some of the survey work that he's done, I thought it'd be interesting just to share a little bit, a couple of results from that when people were asked about different aspects of their job and whether it was related to reporting more joy at work or less joy at work. It's pretty interesting. So for example, I understand my role and the role of others on my team. If you answered yes, 74% of the people that answered yes reported higher levels of joy at work versus 48% who reported less joy at work. Or another big differentiator, shared success is celebrated within the team. The more that happens, the more joy there is at work. Colleagues acknowledge others' contributions to team success. And my talents are utilized effectively. All those things make a big difference. And maybe it's time we started talking about what joy is at work. We spent so many hours, and of course, in our COVID and you know emerging post-COVID world, there's still a lot of work from home. There's still a lot of people dealing with a lot of challenges, including mental health issues, including family issues. And the more that we as leaders can create an environment, a context, a culture within our teams and our organizations that enhances joy, that explicitly thinks about creating joy at work as an outcome, as something we want, and even uses that language, I think is really great. So Alex Liu, I mentioned, is a managing partner and chairman of the board of directors at Kearney. And he's worked with CEOs and boards for decades. He specializes in media and technology sectors. He's worked in more than 50 countries and is particularly well known for a lot of the global outreach work he's done in the context of what work looks like, the future of work, diversity and inclusion and equity. And he's really done a lot of outreach. He's published in Financial Times. He's been in the Harvard Business Review. And he hosts a very popular podcast, which is called Joy at Work, which I would encourage you to take a listen to. He was also the CEO of a tech startup and a partner at Boston Consulting Group, where he helped establish that firm's Asian operations outside of Japan back in the 1990s. So someone with deep, deep expertise, deep knowledge, and really wonderful to talk to. And I love the work he's doing around joy at work. And I love the work he's doing around building equity and inclusion and diversity and fighting aggressively against anti-Asian not just discrimination, but the whole culture and mindset where that's come from. And he's a leader. He really is a leader. So let's talk to Alex Liu on the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's a pleasure to be here today with Alex Liu. Hi, Alex. Hi, Sid. How are you? I'm great. We were talking just before. You're in San Diego. Is there a more beautiful place in America than San Diego? It's tough to beat, Sid. (laughs) We lived in Hong Kong for 10 years and we're from the East Coast. And then my kids, when we're coming back, said, well, where are we going to live when we come back? And I said, well, trust me, I'll pick a nice place. No bugs, no humidity, no pollution, and perfect weather. So, yep, here we are. <laughs> That's what they say about San Diego. I lived in L.A. for uh, six years back in the late 80s, early 90s. And L.A. is not San Diego, but it has a lot of similar things. The weather, for example. People can't stop talking about the weather. Is that true in San Diego? Because there's nothing to talk about. It's always perfect, but everybody talks about it. Well, I think in San Diego, pretty pretty low-key. People do their thing. They're outdoors a lot. I think they take the weather for granted, quite honestly. No one wants to leave to go anywhere. They don't even experience L.A. I mean, that's another country in some quarters. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about, but let's start with some real basics, Alex. So what is it that consultants do? Well, I think we basically help companies and governments, public and private sector, reach their full potential. So we're the ultimate fitness trainer, trusted advisor, end-to-end at the beginning in terms of advice, all the way to hopefully helping execution. So 
whether it's being number one in a certain category of business or being more global or more digital or having a better culture, we're sometimes the go-to resource as an outsider, third-party perspective, global perspective, to help executives, leadership teams, as well as boards and companies themselves and the broader enterprise reach their full potential. And companies can't build their own bench strength to do some of the work or a lot of the work that consultants do? Well, I mean, it's important for any assistance you get from anyone, whether it's a lawyer or a dentist, to be able to transfer or build capabilities so that strength carries on after you. That doesn't mean that at any point in time, individually or corporately, that you don't need help. Right? If you want to go on a diet, if you want to get into shape, you need someone who knows what they're doing, have seen it other before, helped other people maybe have a global perspective or subject matter experts that you don't have, and, then you, and for a boost in a short period of time, help you get to where you need to go, and then hopefully hand it off. No one wants to be working with someone forever on a problem. <laughs> hopefully you fix the problem. Hopefully you fix the problem and moved on to the next problem, because there's always another one. Or let's just say opportunity, because we're going to be positive. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The consulting industry has just grown dramatically. I know that, you know, teaching MBA students, so many of them think this past year 40% went into consulting, which is a pretty big number, and we're not the only uh, business school where that's happened. What's gone on in the industry that's led to this tremendous growth over the last, I don't know, could be 20 years even as a trend? Listen, when I went to business school in Massachusetts, I didn't know what consulting was. I say, why do you need this creature? <laughs> it's secret. It seems like James Bond kind of stuff. You can't say who you're working for or what you're doing. But I've been in the business and profession for over 30 years, and I will say it's the hidden growth industry because it's an index for change, right? Initially, Y2K, globalization, technology, culture, digital, everything, you name it. And post-COVID rebound, we can talk about that later. These are all things that have triggered mergers and acquisition, the growth of private equity, large-scale transformation, performance acceleration, and global supply chains, you name it. And so it's an index for change in the broader social and economic universe that we live in. And therefore, that's why it's a double-digit growth sector. It's a hidden sector in many ways behind the scenes for quite some time. And that's kind of what keeps people at the business school student, undergrads go into the profession as well, people from industry. Because it's a way to involve and engage your personal curiosity about topics of change. And clients need it more and more. I mean, the pace, the urgency, the magnitude, the materiality of what's going on makes consulting a bull market. And we're certainly in a bull market right now, I would say. And we've had a number of cycles of that over the last 30 years. Right. So what makes somebody a good consultant? Someone who's willing to learn as well as teach. Right. Once you, and you know this, my father was a professor for many years in HBCUs in the South, another topic of interest I hope we come to. But as soon as you stop learning about an industry, a sector, people, how people work, you're not a very good teacher, consultant, or coach. So I think consultants need to be curious. They need to want to make a difference. In fact, that's the nature of our purpose statement in our firm, Carney, which is be the difference. Be the difference for your clients, your teams, and your communities. So curiosity linked with passion and boldness around key topics that will make a difference in the world and for companies that will pay you and need you to help them. I like that curiosity and learning. Those are skills I'm thinking you need for almost anything you want to do in life, maybe more so than ever, given how everything is changing. And, you know, lots of companies, I imagine not that many smaller companies have the resources to bring in, you know, Carney and other top consultants. So you got to build. I mean, have you been involved with building up kind of the talent infrastructure for startups or smaller firms? Well, you're right that, you know, it is a pretty you know high value, high price profession. We work on pretty global and 
you know, mostly Fortune 1000 type of countries and companies. But we do keep our feet wet in terms of the types of ventures and smaller companies. So if you work for a bigger company, let's say they're also looking at new technologies and they're looking for alliances. They're looking for startups to buy or merge or to partner with. So we are very much in the ecosystem of big and small new and old type of companies. And we also do some pro bono work. For example, we provide a boot camp for venture companies in the Valley, Silicon Valley. We provide free consulting to young companies who are learning how to pitch, put together a product market proposition, raise money. We do this because our consultants like to sort of solve problems. And why not these types of problems? Because one day they may be an entrepreneur, start a company, and also benefits the broader community of folks that probably don't have access to maybe our type of thinking. It's different worlds, But you can learn from all kinds of worlds. It's kind of one of the themes related to this curiosity point we talked about earlier. Right. When you were a kid, I don't think you probably said, I want to be a consultant because nobody knows what it is when you're a kid. (laughs) But what did you want to be? Well, listen, I originally wanted to be some sort of aerospace engineer because I kind of like rocket ships and stuff. And then I wanted to be like most kids, I wanted to be a professional sports player. And I found out pretty quickly I wasn't going to be able to scale to that. But then, you know, when I went to college, you know, I went to Yale and uh, best first year ever, we learned the great history, the books. And, you know, the cycle of history repeats itself, as you know, right? History is a race between education and catastrophe. And I thought at that time, said that I wanted to be a teacher because I grew up in a family of teachers. My dad was a teacher. The mother of my children in San Diego is a special ed teacher. My son is a coach for uh, tennis and basketball. And my daughter is a fourth grade English teacher. And I'm in a business which, as I said earlier, is teaching and coaching. So I thought that I'd like to teach humanities or history and political science like my father. But then I discovered I like economics. So I learned that. And that's, okay, economics leads to all kinds of things, making pies bigger, making some money. So that's how I got into going to work after college and then to business school. And then I've discovered consulting at business school. It seemed to be like this, what's everyone talking about? What's all the fuss about? Right. When you go to business school, everyone's talking about... It's an echo chamber too. Yeah. It's an echo chamber. I mean, that's one of the things I tell recruits. We hire, of course, very actively on campuses of all types in all countries. Run your own race. Don't follow the crowd just because everyone wants to be an investment banker or a private equity or hedge company. I'm sure you tell this to your students. Find your passion. Do what you love. It doesn't have to be this. It could be consulting for a period of time and then onward, which is usually what happens anyway. But it's a good training ground. It's a good place to manage your curiosity. I want to go back to your kind of growing up and the role of your dad in particular, given that he was a teacher. But you made me think of something, which is when you're recruiting now on college campuses, Are you coming up against people that want to do more of the startups, want to be the next Elon Musk, or people that want to go work for, you know, Tesla or Amazon, Google are hiring so many people. Are you losing people to those types of career tracks that you maybe weren't 10 years ago? I think the availability and choice for people that are going through higher education has never been greater. And I think the selectivity and standards that the young people have these days has also never been higher. They want to work for a company that fits their purpose and mission and values. They want a place where they can actually contribute. They want a place that's diverse and inclusive, the sense of belonging. I think the role of labor economics, I'm going to get paid for that. It's going to be a nine to five. They want to be challenged. They don't want to be a resource in the cog of life or of a company. And this is very consistent, Sid, with the broader narrative in the community at large, which is a broader definition of corporate success, right? The ESG agenda, stakeholder capitalism, multilateralism. It's not just P&Ls and quarterly income statements. It's about what you're doing for society both environmentally, socially, and from a governance perspective. So I think they're much more discerning, and they have more choices. So the war for talent is definitely there, and consulting is one of many options that folks should consider. 
It's not the only one like it used to be. It used to be like top two or three exclusively, most prestigious, highest pay. And it is very high pay, and it continues to be high pay. It's still a top quartile profession many years, every decade after doing it. But that's not enough. People want to see the value and purpose that they're adding to the world and themselves. You know, it's very, very true about purpose and inclusivity. I've been teaching for almost three decades, and I've seen a real significant shift in the types of students that are going to business school now. While there may have been a bit more lip service to some of these things before, this is deeply felt that they care a lot about diversity, about inclusion, about having an impact, about making a difference. And it's fantastic, really, when you have young people that show up and that's their starting point. They're not going backwards. They're not going to eventually end up there. That's where they are. And you got to meet that challenge. And I'm sure that you've seen that itself in your own recruiting, in consulting. And I'm wondering whether you've had to change either how you've onboarded people or the types of projects people are getting into or anything else that's changed to try to deal with the kind of this new, this, it's not that new anymore, but newer mindset of young people. I think you're right, Sid, that there's a generational movement towards exactly what you point out. People want more from their lives in a 360 basis. I'm a baby boomer. You know, 75% of our folks are millennials, 20% are Generation X. We're hiring more Generation Z. I'm probably the last, the 2%, <laughs> the oldest 2%. And I got to tell you, we have to, like in life and any leader, you need to meet people where they are. And this means change management for the whole cycle. I mean, millennials and Generation Z also need to understand the history of how we got here, not just cherry pick certain aspects that you want to focus on, right? Whether it's racial justice, gender justice, et cetera, things that you fight for, but understand the whole context. And I think from a war for talent perspective, we need to make sure that we create a culture which is not only you feel psychologically and physically safe to be in, you need to be seen for who you are, not just your identity, because most diversity is actually invisible, as you know. It's not just race, gender, or age. It is many other things, your mental makeup, how you look at your introversion, level of education, manic depression, mental illness, dyslexia. So diversity is also being seen and supported. Everyone belongs. The best teams are diverse teams. Clients, customers want them. It's representative of the society. And then more importantly, they want to be inspired. So what I hear, and I grew up, you know, I raised three millennials, spoiled but good-natured kids, is that they don't want feedback. They actually want to be supported and inspired. They want to be treated with respect as an individual, and you see them for who they are. And I think the leaders of the future who are leading not only just professional services firms like ours, myself and consulting, because we're only people, we don't have any assets except, you know, people. We have some laptops and real estate leases, but... If you want to inspire a people-based business of any type, you need to create a culture that is aspirational. And I think that's what I learned in dealing with the next set of generations. They don't want to tolerate the worst behaviors. That's not culture. Culture is something much more, and I think that leads to the purpose and meaning narrative, but also a place where people feel that they can belong. That's the DE&I agenda as well. Yeah. And do you feel like, I mean, there's been a criticism about millennials in particular, that they want that seat at the table and they're not willing to wait, and they feel almost entitled. I know you've heard all those types of things. What's your take on that? Well, this is my take. I think a lot of the discussion socially in the fabric is about power. Power is about who is in the room, who decides, who makes the trade-offs, and who ultimately benefits. Now, the reality is there's always an incumbent dominant situation, whether it's a dominant race, dominant culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. Some of my best coaches and mentors 
are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. So I have nothing against that. But there is a dominant culture which has the power. And I think the millennials in particular and the next generation, so to speak, has pointed out this fact, which is, listen, if we want to build a inclusive society, we need to have seats at the table. That doesn't mean just me because I'm a millennial. There could be a narrative, oh, that's entitlement. I think it's about just having a more holistic look at how things are done. It's a realistic sense of what is the source of power in this world. And people can be fearful of that. People in the dominant culture are fearful of that, and they go use words like, well, you're entitled, you're ahead of your game, you got to earn a seat at the table. Well, how do you get at the seat at the table? That's a good question back, right? Mm-hmm. If you are a selection committee for a board of directors and they're all wasp male CEOs, you're going to pick the same kind of people for the next board of directors and not going to be the trustees of this university that reflect the reality of the world or the representational aspects and aspirational aspects of that generation. So I'm not picking any policy differences one way or the other. I just say it's about power. And I think we need to make room at the table for generations to come on topics of materiality. Do you think that, you said you're a baby boomer, I'm a baby boomer. Do you think that baby boomers were not only more willing to pay our dues, but that we maybe were too patient? I mean, you're very successful. Many people that I talk to are very successful. And so you moved up quick. But there was a patience that baby boomers have, I think, that you don't see today. And I'm not asking the question as in, oh, don't we wish that you know, these newer generation, Generation Z or, or millennials were more patient. It's that maybe we were too patient. We didn't fight for enough change quickly enough. Yeah, I'm not sure it's patient versus impatient. I think, and it's tough for me to generalize lessons for all baby boomers, but I do think that certainly for myself, I took a lot less for granted. I always felt like there was a challenge or a sacrifice that needed to be made. It's not just sort of delayed gratification, but there was a threat of war. There was racism. These are things that I faced 50 years ago or more, my parents faced, and we always had to be on edge and fight for everything, be the underdog, be the challenger. And that's kind of a spirit that I like in the newer generation that I think is a commonality. There's a fighting spirit. I think the nature of the challenges and uncertainty Ironically, 50 years later, we still worry about militarism in Asia-Pacific. We still worry about hostility and racism, aggressive microaggressions, outright stone-cold racism, even now. So you could argue that a lot of the circumstances have, have not changed, and therefore have the people changed, I'm not sure. I think there was more respect for history. I certainly, maybe it's from the Asian-American household, I just had a huge respect for tradition. Filial piety is one of the core Confucian values. Education, again, maybe it's more personal. I can't, again, I can't speak for the generation of baby boomers, but my father was a dirt poor peasant in rural, deepest, darkest China. And he was the only one of 11 kids to get past an eighth grade education. And he sacrificed and was patient in education to get a PhD in the U.S. He went to Taiwan, got married there, we came over. So I look at my immediate experience as a baby boomer, which is my immediate family, and say, well, wow, that's a level of sacrifice I'm happy to make. And then maybe that makes me more resilient and therefore patient and take less for granted. But, you know, I still see that same fiber in the next generation. They just have different circumstances that got them where they are. Yeah, I think appreciation of, you use the word sacrifice, and I think it's a fair word. I've talked about in other episodes of the podcast, my own dad, who wasn't educated at all. And I remember listening to the alarm go off 3.30 in the morning because he was a factory worker. And that's how he made a living and he created a life for us. 
uh, created huge opportunities for me and my brothers, and I'll never forget that. And I'd like to think that every generation, and maybe it is a personal thing and how you're brought up and who you are, but every generation appreciates this and their own parents and the people that came before them. But I'm curious about your dad. So how is it that he ended up with the education and actually came to America and his siblings did not? Well, listen, he was viewed, I mean, I mean he told all these stories and he passed away. He was 98 when he passed away uh-huh. earlier this year. And we're working right now on his memorial, and I'm thinking a lot about his education. But when I was a kid, he would tell these stories like, listen, my role was to manage the family's water buffalo. That was the only live asset that they had that they didn't eat because it was used to till the fields. But he was viewed as the smartest kid in the community. They pooled the money in that rural community in Hunan province. And he went to school. He had to walk two miles a day back and forth to this school. And he was just really smart. And he's always been book smart. And then he just said, this is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give back. And we're setting up scholarships for that area, for example, in the Family Foundation. But then he went to school, um, you know, in Taiwan. And when he got married, you know, my mom, rest in peace, also, you know, said, listen, we got to go to America because, you know, worried about, you know, some of the militarism here across the Taiwan Straits, but it's a better education, better opportunity for our children to come. And so he came over and, listen, he taught in HBCUs. Uh, It's the only place that would give him a job. They're great universities, under-resourced, as you know. But he was a non-white, and he was not allowed to teach white kids. Really? And yeah, I mean, a segregated South. And we had a lot of people from South Asia, Indian, black professors, Chinese professors. And he told me this funny story. When I was five years old, I would go to his classes because he would pick us up to kindergarten or whatever at the time. And I said, Dad, why are only black kids go to university? And he (laughs) had to explain to me sort of some things that I didn't quite understand. But that was just the way it was in the South. It was Texas, Louisiana, and North Carolina, where he taught for his whole life, was great. Head of the department, won all these awards and things. So, you know, he persevered through a lot in order to give us the opportunity to have an education. It was obviously very important. My brother and sister all did very well, went to Ivy League schools, if you use that as a marker, and have done very well in life that we've chosen. But education was very much ingrained in us, you know, taking nothing for granted, using the opportunity benefiting from scholarships, mentorships from, again, the dominant social cohorts, and giving back eventually, you know, using the opportunity and not wasting it. So I give a lot to my dad, both from a personal perspective. He, nothing phased him. He saw everything. He had uncles that were killed in the Cultural Revolution and in the war. And so nothing phases me either. I said, listen, yeah. if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah, if he can do it, I can do it. Did he talk a lot about the early days? I mean, how old was he when he left? Did he grow up entirely in China? He became a young adult and went to Taiwan to get university. He went to National Taiwan University. So there's lots of memories then. A lot of memories. He went back to China. He went back, I remember, for his 50th birthday or something and 50th anniversary from leaving. It was quite a change. Of course, China's changed so much also in that time frame. His eyes were wide open. (laughs) Yeah, but he basically mostly, you know, after age 20 was outside of People's Republic of China and was in Taiwan and then became a U.S. citizen. Did he share a lot of stories about life back then? I mean, you shared one or two already. I'm just curious about that. And I think a lot of people are curious because China today seems like, from the outside, nothing like the China of 50 years ago, an ultra powerhouse. And of course, a global rival that we hear more and more about, not just in with the previous president, but even with President Biden talking about it all the time. Well, listen, his stories were 
about being a peasant in China. I mean, what was life like? You know, we just, you know, no running toilets, you know, taking care of the water buffalo. <laughs> and also, so that was one aspect of it, which we kind of got it quickly. And when my brother and I went back, we could see it physically firsthand because a lot of it had not changed even 20 years ago. When we were based in Hong Kong, we went over the border with my dad for his 50th return. The other piece, of course, was the books and what he learned. So he would tell us about, you know, the romance of the three kingdoms and the ancient Chinese narratives around the history of China. So he was very much in love with books and tried to get us to understand the history of China. We were resistant for many years. We're more interested in modern history and Western history. And what I learned at Yale and directed studies, which you may be aware of, is the Great Books Program. And so he was very much a man of the books and the worldly world of that. So we had a lot of stories about what he learned about education, Confucian values, the importance of being righteous, of being grateful, of being moderate. So it was really values-based teaching versus stories per se. Right. And how about your mom? She was also from China or Taiwan? Yeah, she was from Shanghai. She was the exact opposite. She was a daughter of a pretty wealthy banker that lost a lot during the communist revolution, you'd call it. And then they fled to Taiwan. So she was in many ways quite different than my dad. He was the glacial ice person and my mom was the fire and volcano. And they were a perfect fit together. And she was just able to keep my father in line. Anytime he got uppity, so to speak, in her eyes, she would just say, listen, you're just a country boy from China. And he would like, oh, what do you mean by that? I'm educated on a PhD. So it was just fun watching that dynamic. And I think there are aspects of that personality that, of course, you all eventually become your parents in some way. And you can choose the best aspects of their personalities. But they were a good fit. And they both shared a belief that the children should make it better for their children. And that's kind of a focus of mine right now too. And I try to live that legacy. I try it very hard. It's really interesting what you said that your father was, everyone knew in the village, he was the smartest kid. And first of all, there's a curiosity about that, which is he had many siblings, you were saying. And how is it? We know about randomness and DNA. We also know about discovery and not discovery. But how is it that he's the one? Surely his siblings, at least some of them or several of them, were equally endowed with some raw intellect. Yes, I don't know. I mean, they could have been equally smart, but just didn't have the opportunity. They were too busy sort of surviving, tending to the fields, getting food in their mouths. The fact that he gravitated toward books and was reading voraciously, he read voraciously till the day he died. He wrote books. He wrote prolifically about anything. He was always reading and writing and having TV on, etc. But I don't know. Again, his parents were, from what I could tell, you know, they were just your classic overworked noon until sunset folks. They didn't have time to think about books. And maybe because he was the youngest of 11 and they just wanted him to do something different. And they just sort of nurtured that. And part of it was obviously his natural inclination. They may have been uneducated formally, but they certainly were obviously capable people. They just didn't have that opportunity. I mean, there was no money. It was just nothing. It was just rice fields and the buffalo tending to it. Yeah. You said you worked in Hong Kong for years. You probably have had Chinese clients as well. I'm curious about what differences you've seen over time and maybe especially more recently in the types of challenges or issues that you're brought into to address for Chinese-based companies, or maybe they were multinationals in China and Hong Kong versus American companies. Well, listen, just a bit of 
back up a little bit. I was started out in consulting in Boston in the U.S., so I worked there for five years, and I raised my hand and said, listen, I want to go to Asia, mm-hmm. where I came from, obviously, <laughs> and start a consulting practice in the 90s. This was six months after the Tiananmen incident, right, the bottom of the cycle. We had no clients. We had no staff. We had no offices. And they said, well, Alex, you're more American than we are. Why would you want to go there? I said, no, no, I'm gonna, this is important for my life mission. So we went back with my little kids in tow. They were, my kid was like one month old, I think, my second kid. We worked in Hong Kong for 10 years, so we were kind of advocates and ambassadors of the role of Western management consulting, so to speak, an unknown. Most companies in East Asia, as you know, are run by families, very successful, smart family companies, whether they're Korean Chibbles or the families down in Southeast Asia, and they become giant conglomerates. In mainland China, the People's Republic, mostly state-owned enterprises. So the work that I worked in for 10 years in Hong Kong, which was a base for multinationals, and the Marco Polo phase of Asia, you know, look at riches beyond compare. China is the world's largest market. 80% of the world's supply chains start and end there type of thing. But in those days, the clients were mostly multinational clients trying to set up wholly owned ventures, joint ventures in the area and building an Asian presence. Now, over time, obviously, it's an acceleration in the last 10, 15 years. You've got the world's biggest companies like Alibaba, the control of the world's credit markets, supply chains, etc., but also the source of the world's biggest pollution. So China is definitely in the mix, and a key part of the discussions we have, for example, in multilateral forums, World Economic Forum, Business Roundtable, is how to get China to the table. So that game is over. You know, China is at the table. They are big entities, public and private sector, global entities, and, you know, we work for them, you know, as consulting clients of all types, just like in any part of the world. It's come of age in a very short period of time, and I think that's the reality. So it's no different than Germany in some sense. You've got a mix of clients, different sizes, different needs. All clients, in my view, are local with global needs. They need to be locally serviced and understood and covered, but they have global needs that you cannot predict, (laughs) just like you can't predict the world. Right. And it's interesting. One of your colleagues said, you know, you're more Western or American than than anyone else. Why do you (laughs) want to go to China? Which raises the question of how you look at this. So your ancestors are from China. You're 100% American and brought up American kids and an American family, but obviously have a tight connection to your legacy. And today, especially, we have pretty overt conflict between China and America. You know, we could talk about COVID, but there's lots and lots of other, actually much bigger areas. I don't know. You probably have a pretty interesting perspective about that. Well, it does get to the point of uh, how do you identify yourself? Are you an ethnic? Are you a nationality? Are you a person brain type? I try to be quite simple. I'm just a global citizen and global student. You know, I'm trying to learn from everyone. I'm trying to bridge gaps, not create them. I try to learn from every environment. I love my industry and profession because every day is different. It's not every day I have a SIDCAST, for example. And, you know, every agenda is different. Every client is different. Every topic is different. Every country is different. I've been to 40, 50 countries and worked in all of them. So I don't view myself as just from one country and therefore enamored or attached to one ideology or set of politics or whatever. Each person is a snowflake, right? Each brain is different. DNA is different. Clearly, my DNA is from China. And that's a part of my identity in the Americas as well, because no one would let me forget about it. No one would let my father teach because that was what his identity was. But my coaching and counsel to a lot of younger folks who might be listening is, you know, listen, you've got to have multiple sources of self-respect and esteem to be happy. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your racial identity. Maybe it's your spirit. Maybe it's your athleticism. But you need four or five to be happy and holistic. And I think that's to me, is more person. Be a holistic person, not be identified by one country's politics or one party's politics or one race's issues. 
because, you know, we're human at our core and companies and people that are successful recognize and treat people that way as individuals, not as easy identities. Yeah. So as an Asian American leader, you've become a spokesperson, certainly as a very senior leader at Carney and around the world, really. I mean, you're chairman of the board of directors at Carney, managing partner, a long track record of work with other companies. But you've also spoken out about racism. And we're at a particular point, certainly in America, where there's more and more recognition of racism, obviously with Black Lives Matter and what happened throughout 2020, more recently with Asian Americans. And the recognition is in part because there's been many, many, many more instances of overt racism. And that's actually true for anti-Semitism as well. Yes. So what can you say? What do you say about this? How do you teach people? I mean, when you're on these panels, when the topic is racism and dealing with racism and trying to overcome that, what can we do? What do you suggest for people? Well, I think you put your finger on a couple of key points, which is first there is using my platform to talk about not only recognition and reality of the situation and the history that we've all come through and want to go through together, but also the reconciliation and forgiveness. There's the other side of the rainbow, the other side of the tunnel. That So I try to look at the full spectrum, not just gravitate on one issue or one topic or even one race or identity. You mentioned that there's hate around all areas, religion, history, nationality, immigrant versus non-immigrant. It's personal to me. And leaders these days not only because of COVID, but before COVID, are being asked to step up to their belief system and actually communicate it. It's what I call the unmasking of the CEO. And I take my responsibility both in a proactive and a aspirational way to speak out on what I believe. I'm not telling people what to think. I want to help people understand how I think about it. And hopefully that will move the needle in these forums, whether it's CNBC or World Economic Forum or the Economist Panel or whatever forums that I'm being asked to invite at, and certainly internally. And with clients that asked me to speak on the topic of allyship, belonging, culture, I call it the ABCs. You need allyship. It can't just be black solutions being created by black people in Black History Month. It has to be white support for black solutions and go down the list. And then it has to be about belonging. It's not just about diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity is a statistic, and it's mostly invisible. Inclusion is a set of behaviors and intentions. But the real landing spot is belonging. And I tell and I try to live by example in my own company. You know, it's a global company. We represent all countries, regions, religions, races, et cetera, genders. Is that we need to and we ask, do you feel like you belong? Do you feel that you can bring yourself? Being yourself should be good enough. Define yourself. Be yourself. You'll be productive. You'll be economically valuable. Clients will love you. Teams will love you, et cetera. You'll learn all that good stuff. There's no trade-off by being yourself. And then that leads to culture. As I said before, culture should not be the lowest common denominator of the worst behaviors that we tolerate. It should be aspirational. We should have joy and justice in our work. We should not settle for anything less. And that means a fully respectful environment of each other for who we are. We were happy and joyful in the first playground we went to, the first day of school, the first day of college, the first day of work. We shouldn't settle for anything less, Sid. And so, as you know, I have a podcast on joy at work, (laughs) which was even before COVID. I was, during the last year, being asked and happily so to speak out on the racial and social justice issues that came to the forefront, beginning with George Floyd, but was there for 50 years since I've been in this country. So it's personal to me. And hopefully the authenticity of what leaders will believe will transcend, but also transmit to the broader company folks that will be following the next generation, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, so that they can carry the purpose and meaning forward in their own way, 
you've said, you know, this has been around for 50 years and, of course, much, much longer be than that. Beyond that, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like it's getting worse? It's certainly being recognized as something way more. I mean, maybe we just didn't pay enough attention to it. Well, not maybe. We didn't pay enough attention to it. But now it's everywhere and the evidence is overwhelming. Or is it that things are getting worse? I think there's two overlapping cycles here. I think we're at a fever pitch on the recognition part of it. Mm -hmm. It's amplified by social media, visual and visceral evidence and outrage. I mean, just looking at a video of someone being murdered is going to say, listen, I'm as a human, this is just not right. And then, of course, it unfolded all kinds of other underlying resentment, frustration, history, et cetera, on Let's just state for the moment that the black and racial justice movement in the United States has won. But there's, as you said, anti-Semitism for centuries. This has all been there. But the recognition of this, including the anti-Asian incidents in the last month or two, right? Some of it related to whatever. You can point to any reason why. So we're at the fever pitch on the recognition side. Now, we're at the beginning phases of what I call reconciliation or reckoning. Like, what do you do about it? How do you have a more joyful and just society? It starts, at least in my world, a bit with, I'm a citizen, I'm a voter, but I'm also a business person. And if you look at any of the trust indexes, like the Edelman Trust Index was most recently mentioning that businesses are the most trusted institution, not the military, not the police, not government, mm, not politicians. That, that's a it's switch. a switch. So, yeah. And certainly during COVID, when this is where you had the source of truth, you don't trust the media. You can pick whatever media you want to trust, I suppose, these days. So there is a mantle of responsibility that business leaders have to try to move the needle towards more solutions and lead by example. So, for example, having much more fair and inclusive recruiting practices, more thoughtful promotion and retention programs to sponsor different types of career paths for gender equity, for racial awareness and inclusion for representation at the more senior parts of an organization, because that's the governance and the power center. So there's a lot that each of us individually and I can and try to do to move the needle on this sort of racial and social inequities to have a more fair and just workplace, tactical and practical solutions to try to address it, not just fixate on the problem, but move towards solutions. Right. And pretty much every company of any size that I'm familiar with is spending time trying to figure out what to do. And I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, there's a lot of research. You started to talk about the ABC, which is, I think, a very good way to think about this. But you look at some of the training programs. I think there have been studies that show that training programs lead to more discrimination, not less discrimination, which is crazy. But there you have it. So it's a tough, tough thing to figure out. There's no easy solutions. I think it's kind of implicit in you know, as soon as you say that culture is part of the solution, as you have, then you know there's no easy solution because culture is a big deal and takes time. But I'm wondering if you can share some, I don't know, some small wins, some specific examples, either from your own personal life from Carney or from clients that you've advised, maybe specifically around diversity issues. For leaders of organizations that are looking, uh, I need to get started. I need to get some wins on this. I'm not sure what to do. What are some suggestions for them? Yes, I think you're right in pointing out that it's easy to set pronouncements and pledges and targets and quotas or whatever you want to call it, because it needs to be translated into real moving the middle. It's usually the middle of the organization that is the biggest change. They're the people that can say no. A lot of people can say yes to a pledge, but a lot of people can say no to the day-to-day culture and behaviors, as we all know. And we also mentioned the younger generation, they get it. They just want to unblock the obstacles on the way to a better workplace and a better society. Let's just pick the topic I mentioned earlier about allyship. One of the things that happened during last year, during the summer, right after George Floyd was what we call courageous conversations. And this is the starting point 
making people uncomfortable with the reality and history of systemic racism, understanding other people's stories. So what I did and what we did as a leadership team was that we made it safe for people to come with their stories. We had a whole day just people saying, well, this is my experience. And people just did not realize that just getting into work on the subway, people had five, on average, microaggressions. You know, and there was a whole spectrum of even worse examples. We also brought in for our U.S. colleagues, and I spoke with each individual black colleague in what we call our Black at Carney group to understand their story and for them to hear from me my support for the mission, the broader mission at the firm. I talked to each of them that was able to and wanted to speak. We also had our colleagues in South Africa speak about what happened during apartheid. And when you had a change in government and you moved from white to black, like almost in a few months, how that was done peacefully, as peacefully as possible, and moved towards reconciliation. And that was 25 years ago, but it was really encouraging to have that kind of cross-allyship with a really relevant situation, talk about at the height of the racial tremors in the United States. Some of the best allyship has been from those other disadvantaged minorities, Asian American groups, LGBTQ+, what we call the proud community, Hispanic Latinx community. These are communities that were most initially the women's rights movement, the women's network at Kearney. They all supported each other more. And it was not like us supporting against anyone else, just supporting for support's sake. But having the courageous conversations with the maybe the more dominant groups, cross-group, was able to unleash a lot of safety, psychological safety, Sid, as well as pent-up resentment. Because if you don't start with reality, you can't fix it. And I think that was really important. That's the best practice that I've seen work. We've now taken the allyship program and tried to make it more scientific. Now we've got an online version of it. We've got facilitators. Now we're doing the facilitation ourselves. And then, of course, there's a whole plethora of programs and initiatives to support at all levels of the career path a sense that we are tracking belonging and equity along the way. But it's a long struggle when we're committed to the long journey to make it happen and move the needle. And we ask people, too, the belonging question. Do you feel that you belong? Do you feel that you are seen? If you don't get a good answer there, whatever you're doing ain't working. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't that, matter how many that, programs you launch. That's the litmus test for you. Absolutely. Do you feel like you belong? You know, when you talk about those examples of microaggressions, which feel pretty macro, I think, when they happen to you, I mean, I've heard many of these stories from friends and colleagues as well, but one of the first times was a number of years ago and it was a group of CEOs together and I was helping facilitate something. And then it was a panel talking about race issues. And in the audience was, there was one very, he was in private equity at this stage of his career, but very talented, very experienced CEOs. And he says, let me tell you what happened to me last week, driving a nice car in Florida. And there's a cop that comes behind him with the lights flashing and he'd seen it before. And I hadn't heard what he shared. I had not actually heard that expressed that way. So it's no surprise that anyone has lived this and lived this for a long time. But for many others, maybe it is. So it's worth mentioning. And he said, well, I pulled over and opened the windows. I turned off the engine. I put the keys on the dashboard. I put my hands up on the dashboard so that they're completely visible. And I waited for the police officer to come. That's what he did. And I'm thinking in my entire life, and I have been stopped by a cop because maybe I was speeding or a light was out and I didn't know it. Has that happened a lot? No, but it's happened more than once or twice. It didn't even occur to me to do such a thing. It wouldn't have occurred to me to do such a thing, to completely disarm yourself or show that you're disarmed. And this is like normal practice. And this is someone who's in boardrooms around the world. And he said, this is what my life is. It doesn't matter how successful I am and what impact I have on other people. This is what I deal with uh, every day. Well, Sid, I got to tell you, stories matter. And your story highlighted another one from my own experience. And I've told this story 
a couple of times. I've told at the NFL where we had a similar forum like this with their 1,500 employees. I told us at a trustee meeting for the high school that I am a board member of where, again, it was an all-white, all-male boarding school in Virginia called Episcopal High School. And now it's, I'm proud to say, 40% black or minority board members. It's co-ed. And it was first high school in Virginia, Sons of Robert E. Lee, right? I mean, it's a classic litmus test. But I told a story in this century, in San Diego, the place that we were regaling the virtues of weather-wise and otherwise. In this century, in broad daylight, I was pulled over and I had three cop cars, guns drawn on me, get out of the car, get on your knees. They put those plastic cuffs on me. And I don't know why they pulled me over. I didn't stick around to ask. They checked the registration. But evidently, I was behaving erratically in a sports car. It looked like a stolen vehicle. Now, obviously, it was a ridiculous reason. I was someone that was not supposed to be driving that kind of car in this very nice area suburb of San Diego. And in the nice place that we lived... In This is interesting about do you believe there's systemic racism or not. It's the largest unincorporated part of San Diego, a place called The Covenant. You may know it. It's a nice place. Great microclimate. We'll live there again. We've already left it. My, my wife still teaches at the school there as a special ed teacher. In the bylaws of The Covenant, there are four groups that are not allowed to own property. This is from the early 90s. You can guess those four groups. Now, it's not enforced, but you can't tell me that's not systemic racism. That still persists in the U.S. code or the local code. The only race, I tell this story to you, the only race that's excluded from actually citizenship and immigration in the U.S. code today is still Chinese because of the Anti-Exclusion Act. It's just not enforced. So these are things that people just don't know. And they say, well, I can't believe that, you know. And then you pivot from that, though very quickly you have to, Sid, to, Mm -hmm. okay, well, what do you do about it? I'm fine. We'll be fine, but we need to move towards a better way because this is, you got to start with reality. That's the first rule of business. This is true. This is happening to people like Sid and Alex and others every day, you know. Yeah. You know, you are a leader who is speaking up and leading really on issues around race and social justice. And there are a lot of CEOs, actually. And I've been really surprised, and I guess in a good way, over the last several years to see how many CEOs are speaking out about issues, even the challenges to the right to vote in Georgia took a little bit of time, but then you had leadership at Coca-Cola and elsewhere and Home Depot, and I'm not sure all the other companies that were speaking up that anything that makes it more difficult to vote is something we're against. This came up with gay rights. It comes up, obviously, with George Floyd aftermath and many other examples and stories like George Floyd. It seems to be a really major trend is too soft of a word because trends come and go. And I don't know what you think about it, but I've been struck by how many CEOs are willing to speak up. And by the way, not every customer and not every employee will agree with them, which is why they never wanted to say anything before. No, it's a tough balance because, as we said, the definition of success is so much broader now. You have so many more stakeholders, right, to keep your people retained and feel that they are part of a company they can be proud of, your clients, your customers, the regulators. These are all part of it. Now, I mean, there's a spectrum of behavior and injustice out there, and we've talked a bit about that, Sid. There's also a spectrum of responses that a company or a CEO or a board need to also think about. Is it all the way from silence to activism to speaking out? Each company and leader has to find their comfort level and even push their comfort level. I do know that what I do in my company, and not everyone's going to agree with my policies or things like that, but I think people can understand how I think. So I try to be as transparent and authentic about the things that I care about and how I think about it. I don't tell people how to vote. 
I don't tell people which airline to go on because of this policy. I tell people how I think about the issue because I am a fully formed human and I have my biases. I have my blind spots. And I think if you don't believe that you have blind spots, that's probably your blind spot. <laughs> right. And I, so I don't make it sort of racism or anti this or that. I just say, listen, we all have blind spots. I will speak out about the things that I don't understand even. It just doesn't feel right to me. That's different than being advocates for specific policies. I'm not a legislator. I'm not a king. I'm not a genius. So I think that's just be who you are as a CEO is my advice to CEOs about how and when to speak up. Speak up when it matters, but speak up because it comes from you, not because your public relations department said you have to say something. That to me is that goes against everything that I believe in. And you're finding that CEOs are asking you about this. It's coming up. It's top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to the purpose agenda, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Joy at Work and the whole project and the podcast for that matter. Yeah, well, thank you. You know how I believe it, how I feel about it. I think you should settle for nothing less. We did some research when I first took over my role. I'm now in my fourth year before COVID. And I wrote an HBR article, which was one of the most successfully downloaded online versions that the editor said in quite a while, because it's just an interesting topic, making joy a priority at work. Wait, that doesn't sound right. But there's a joy gap. People expect this from their work. We spend 40, 50% of your life there. All your colleagues, your friendships made, lifelong come from work, your sense of self-worth, your passion. Why is it that people are not getting joy from work? So that's kind of the initial trigger, Sid. And then, um, you know, it's been a pivot point into the importance of culture, even in these very difficult times. And I'm now in finishing season three on Joy at Work podcast. So talk to, like yourself, a broad range of people, academics, Broadway producers, CEOs. I just finished the last podcast taping of the voice of the MBA and graduating undergrads, what they're looking for, exactly to the topic you and I zeroed in on, which is what are they looking for from work? Do they want a contract? Do they have a higher expectation? Do they want purpose in their leaders? Do they want a career for life or lifelong learning? So that's kind of an interesting final episode for season three, but it's gotten a lot of runway because it does link to these broader social topics and business leadership topics that you're very tuned into. I love the title, Joy at Work, for two reasons. Number one, my daughter's middle name is Joy. Oh, and, uh, great. So, and we have a lot of joy. She just got married very recently, so we're all very happy. And even better, she's happy, exceptionally so. And then secondly, you know, work is quite the opposite to joy for so many and too many people. I think about in terms of meaning, where do people get meaning? Work has to have some meaning. Life has to have meaning, but work has to have some meaning. And I think I saw somewhere you wrote or used a line to explain why do we exist as a team or as an organization. And I often talk about that with senior leaders when I'm working with them, right? That's pretty, I mean, you got to be able to answer that question and in a pretty important way. Well, we're always in a team and in a team of teams, if you look at the broader society. And I think the analogy in my HBR article, and I'm happy to send it to you and to anyone who wants to look at it, is the analogy to pursuing championships in sports. If you look at TV and a winning team, there's nothing more than the joy, the fans, the diversity of the reaction. And we try to peel apart. Listen, what makes successful teams a good example? They provide role clarity and harmony in the workplace. There is acknowledgement, you know, whether it's high fives or seeing what you do in our mission in the company. And then there's got to be a sense of impact. You know, why do we exist? Are we here to win championships? Are we here to be the number one space company or whatever you want to pick? And for me, it's very relevant, Sid, going back to my own history, because as an outsider my entire life, I found sports to be a great equalizer because that's where you learn initially role clarity and rapport. 
how to fit in. Oh, you're a shortstop. Oh, you're good at stealing bases. Or you're good at rugby, which is my real passion. And I know Dartmouth is really good at rugby, certainly Ivy League rugby. And so for me, it's a very interesting parallel or analogy about how do you build high-performing, excellent championship cultures by looking at successful winning teams. And if you're a veteran or a rookie, you can buy in and win a championship together because you can't do it by yourself. You may have talent, but you're not going to win any championships, as Michael Jordan says, without teamwork. So I love the joy at work, and it's something that I try to live by. And at the end of my life, I don't want to die wondering whether or not I did something that I loved, mm-hmm. whatever I do. Yeah, that is such a great notion and mindset and a good way to wrap up on our conversation. I have one last question for you, Alex. And it's a question about advice. In some ways, you've been providing advice for an hour. But here's the question. If you can magically go back in time to when you were 20 years old, you yourself were 20 years old, and you could lean over to the 21-year-old Alex Liu and say, if there's one thing you want to know, if there's one thing you want to be alert to, it's one mistake you don't want to make, what would it be? What have you learned over time that you did not know when you were 20? Well, I would say two things. One, first, run your own race. Self-define your passion, your definition of success, because you're your own board of directors, right? And the other is that to get there, I think EQ is more important than IQ. And I learned that at age 20. You know, if you go to Yale, everyone's a valedictorian. You're not going to get all A's. And I didn't my first semester, first B's I ever got. (laughs) But then the second semester, I said, I'm just going to do what I love. I'm going to take more classes, but ones that I like. I'm going to also join this rugby team, which I now have a lifelong passion. And I'm going to go to all the parties that I didn't go to my first semester because I was studying. And I got all A's. You know, I got one B the rest of my time. So I think just I learned that at age 20, by the way even before I was whispering in my uh, yes. my my ear like Mr. Spock did in Star Trek. But that's a great question. So run your own race, and EQ is better than IQ. Yeah. You've got to learn how to understand situational and self-awareness, which is related to the first point. Which is really interesting to think about, because we don't spend much time in college teaching kids about EQ. Maybe in business school a little bit more, but certainly not when you're an undergraduate. And that's a shame, because you can't teach somebody IQ. DNA is going to take care of that. But an EQ, DNA is a factor, but not nearly as big as life is a factor. Fully agree on that. I mean, it's the biggest derailer of a lot of executives, not understanding the undisclosed intentions or really what's going on. Why didn't I get copy on that email? But it's a life lesson, too. Think about your own personal lives. Everyone's got successes and failures in all parts of life. EQ over IQ, run your own race. Alex, Alex Lou, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. We're going to look for joy at work as well. I really appreciate the time you're spending with us and great, great ideas. Thanks a lot, Sid. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com. Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.